Hey, Richard Gottlieb. Chris Byrne. How you doing? I'm doing good. We got another good show today. We do. It's a little bit puzzling, uh, but we'll get to that in a minute. But first, this is the Playground Podcast with me, Chris Byrne, my co-host and cohort, Richard Gottlieb. We are brought to you by Global Toy Experts, the toy guy and marketing and media agency, Chizcom. And my puzzle reference before was because we are joined today by Thomas Kepler, who is president of Ravensburger North America, and he oversees puzzles, which is probably pretty interesting last year, uh, play sets and construction, and one of my favorite toys that they've done, Gravatrox. So Thomas, welcome, and, and thank you for spending the time with us. Hi, good morning, Chris and Richard. Uh, nice to talk to you both. Really excited to be on the show. Puzzles have been a big deal in the last year, and and certainly when I talk to people about puzzles, Ravensburger always comes up. And I had lunch with a, with a young friend who is from Holland last week, and she was talking about Ravensburger and, and puzzles. She wanted to know a game to play, and I said villainous. But talk to us a little bit about how the puzzle business was during the pandemic and how, how it's going now. Well, you, you have me on camera here. The, the audience ultimately won't be able to see that. But, uh, you know, if you looked at me two years ago, uh, a lot of my hair would have been not as gray as it currently is. Uh, it's been... It's been puzzling. Uh, I think we kind of started out with on, on the right note. Uh, it's been challenging. It's been something that I never thought I was ever going to experience in my life in a category that a lot of people considered fairly dull uh, and boring and, and kind of old fashioned and almost backwards uh, back in the day. And one that kind of in the pandemic hit kind of blew up at rates that I don't think most other toy categories actually saw. It was a little bit comparable to that uh, grace around uh, coloring books that happened a couple of years ago without the pandemic. But, you know, we saw for a while, like when the pandemic started in, in kind of March, April, we saw demand that kind of seemed infinite. And the, cha the challenge really was to kind of dive in a little deeper. The challenge really was that this didn't happen in a particular country or on a particular continent. This happened worldwide. This happened pretty much in every country. Wherever people were locked down as the pandemic made its round uh, around the world, you know, it happened everywhere. So anybody that was making puzzles and in particular larger companies like us that sell puzzles globally, I would say the supply chain took on water, if you want to call it that. That there just wasn't enough. Like you could not in running machinery 24-7, 365, we just couldn't produce enough puzzles. It was as simple as that. So do you feel, because of the supply chain challenges, did you maximize the business you could have done? Well, you kind of have to dissect the two years, like off the pandemic that, uh, that, that we've all experienced. In 2020, the supply chain challenge was mostly on the manufacturing side. So like it was a capacity challenge of just not having, for a lot of people, not just us, like they were making puzzles, not having enough hours in the day, factory workers, you know, with social distancing, like, you know, the business or the manufacturing part kind of, you know, going slower than it uh, otherwise would. All of that said, like, there wasn't really a challenge of getting product somewhere from the factory to the consumer. The only challenge was pretty much like manufacturing capacity and to a degree getting it through warehouses because we all had to social distance, right? And those workers couldn't ship product as quickly as they did before the pandemic. But 
for the most part, that was the challenge then. In 2021, we all thought coming out and, and, you know, puzzles wasn't the only category that was that hot. There were other categories that were just as hot as puzzles. We all thought that we had a year ahead of us that did not have this manufacturing challenge anymore. You know, a lot of us on the manufacturing side worked really hard to increase capacity, find additional vendors, find new sources, do all that type of stuff. And we communicated so with our retailers, right? And then very early on in 2021, something else happened. And that was the global shipping crisis that despite your increased capacity and having overcome challenges that we saw in 2020, we all of a sudden couldn't get product to its destination anymore. The outcome of all of this did not look very different to a retailer or a consumer in both cases. That was the real challenge that we had. Like we had communicated that we were going to do a lot better. There were lots of people on the retail side as well as consumers that were disappointed, not just with us, but with lots of those manufacturers that had challenges like in 2020. They couldn't make as much product as they should have or as people wanted. And then in 2021, we thought everything was going to be good, and it wasn't. Do you think that what you been through and what your company has been through has made you a better business person and your company a stronger company? I do think so. I've certainly personally learned a lot. I've been at this for a long time. That's an entirely separate topic. I've learned a lot. I've been through phases in my career where I had to allocate puzzles to retailers on hot products. I remember still back in the day when Teletubbies was really hot in the UK. I was still back in Germany and and helping the UK team manage production schedule, forecasting and all that type of stuff. We went through something a little bit similar, but it was a pretty concise product line. It was maybe five, six queues that were really hot that we had to allocate and kind of manage. This time around, it was everything, like everything that had to do with puzzles. You're talking almost 300 SKUs that you have to manage like on that level is barely doable. So there were really long days, one. And then two, trying to figure out how you maximize, which was really interesting, trying to figure out how you maximize your runway to the consumer and and getting as much product out to into consumers' hands as you possibly can was an interesting undertaking too. We decided, and not everybody was happy about it, we decided to kind of shut down pretty much our complete dropshipping services, whether that was through major retailers or through our own website, to get product out in mass and in bulk. It was easier to ship like in mass the case packs to retailers that were able to take that in. But it was an interesting undertaking and something that I never thought we would have to do. So if I understand correctly, then you changed a little bit of your direct-to-consumer retail structure during the pandemic, right? Yes. So Robinsberger has been in the interlocking puzzle business for going on 60 years. You started in, in 1964 with that, which incidentally was a big heyday of the jigsaw puzzle here in the United States. It was uh, the Springbok puzzle, and, and a lot of those were, were really huge at that time. And Puzzles seem to be generational. There was another huge bump in puzzles and puzzling and puzzle competitions in the late 1980s. And now here we've got stuff going on. And now here we are in 2022 and, and they're back again. What makes a good jigsaw puzzle? I think you could ask 10 puzzlers and you'd probably get 10 opinions uh, about what makes a good puzzle. What's at the heart of this is what I would call puzzler personas or puzzler interest levels, right? There's various 
call it personas out, out there that puzzle. There's people out there that puzzle because they like a challenge. There's people out there, consumers out there that puzzle because they want to keep their brains sharp. There's people that are puzzling that really want to relax. For each one of those, like I'm just outlining a, a few, the ideal puzzle looks very different. So there is no one thing that you could call here is the ideal puzzle, right? Uh, something that would be a challenge, for example, or a challenging puzzle. We have one in our lineup that's called Crypt. It's just everything is one color. Like, you know, there's oh just... God. It, it it's like a puzzle in one color, like in silver and black, you know, you pick the color. Uh, there is a little <laughs> distinguishing factor that helps people to kind of put the puzzle together, which is kind of the cut of the puzzle itself. So it's kind of got a circular cut to it, mm -hmm. but that's extremely challenging. Like everything, like if I told you here that a good puzzle for the for the puzzler that relaxes has a lot of detail, has a lot of color variation is interesting. And I'll get to a couple more in a second they would not consider a grip puzzle a good puzzle. But the consumer or person that loves challenge puzzles would probably consider the grip puzzle a really good puzzle. So that's the fun part here. Like as you're trying, as you're developing product uh, in this category, like you're developing toward entirely different consumer groups and personas. By far the largest one is consumers, according to our research, is consumers that relax when they puzzle. Right. I'm honestly speaking, not one of them. Like it does not relax me when I puzzle. So, <laughs> to, me, to me, this is something that's a, a you know a challenge. Like uh, my brain's not wired that way that my brain can relax like when you're puzzling. But my wife is. Uh huh. What What matters to people and to that by far largest consumer group is what we believe is immersive storytelling through the art that they are kind of having on their dining room table in their cabin when they're out there like on vacation that type of stuff that that puzzle that image that they're looking at for a couple of hours depending on how good you are and how large mm -hmm. or how high the piece count is is something that people you know are looking at for a very long time so that being intriguing that telling a story that transporting them literally like into a different place is key and makes a successful puzzle if you can figure that part out uh, in product development through your art. That is what makes a successful puzzle. One of the other variables is, of course, piece count. I have some history in the puzzle industry. And going back in time, I, my memory tells me that the 500-count puzzle was the most popular piece count, at least at that time. Have you seen any changes over the last two years? I could talk about this for a whole day. That's <laughs> on that question. But I've seen two major ones. One is we have done extremely well with our really high piece count puzzles. Like, you know, we have a 40,000 piece, 40,320 piece puzzle. The, the Disney one. I was going to ask about yeah, that. Disney right. One. Yeah, exactly. You know, it, it doesn't solve. And and I should have probably asked you to rephrase the question, Richard, like, you know, are you talking dollar volume? Are you talking units that you're selling? So like, you know, that's, <laughs> that, that sits at the background. If you're talking, if you're talking dollar volume, that puzzle still stack ranks at the top of our puzzle lineup in, wow. in what we do. It does not do that, obviously, based on retail price, but it does not do that when you're looking just at unit sales. The other trend that we have been seeing is people that puzzled during the pandemic, the age demographic shifted younger for 
a certain period. It seems to be shifting to a degree back to where it used to be, but it's still younger than it was before. We also saw a lot of people that either had never puzzled before, hadn't puzzled for a long time, kind of coming back to the category or getting into the category. Before the pandemic, the most popular piece count category pretty much was a thousand piece puzzle. We are seeing a trend to lower piece count categories predominantly, we believe, because people that are fairly new to the hobby and activity consider that too challenging yet for them. They are kind of gravitating towards the 500 piece puzzles, even 300 piece puzzles, piece count formats to a degree in some cases that we would have considered children's piece count formats just a couple of years ago. As I'm listening to you talk, it's clear you have a lot of information about your customer. How do you guys go about collecting that? That's kind of part of the secret sauce. It's the most fun part of this whole business is actually, uh, you know, thinking about your consumer, your intended target group, because ultimately this is who drives our business. We go about this from a couple different angles. We do what I would consider really professional market research, you know, focus groups, uh, qualitative, quantitative studies with renowned agencies, all that type of stuff. And we go all the way to, in some cases, talking to puzzle enthusiasts when we're doing events. In some cases, we just talk to our own employees. We've got a lot of puzzlers in our ranks. In some cases, I just talk to my wife who loves to puzzle. <laughs> it, that that would be then a, a mix of research tactics. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Your headquarters is in Germany. It's a global company. Are the tastes global and puzzle picture, or are there definitely national characteristics? There is some national, in particular when you're talking licensing. There's some characters that kind of show up on German TV. I think goes without saying that, you know, aren't successful over here. We seem to be seeing some differences. We have a product development team over here in in North America that's developing puzzles, not just for the North American audience, but also with the goal to kind of sell that to a global audience. So like we are an innovation hub for the company. However, I realized with that team, and I'll start there, when they are seeing certain things that come from uh, the product development side of the German corporate office, that they are hesitating and thinking that they are not right for the market. So like, you know, puzzles are obviously based on taste, it's art, and and you're talking personal tastes. And the same thing seems to be happening when our team develops puzzles, not in all cases, but sometimes in those puzzles, then seemingly not being as appealing to the team over there that's kind of picking for the markets in Europe and in Germany. Photograph images seem to be selling better in Europe and in particular in Germany. Um, I could give you the quick, we jokingly sometimes say, photograph scenes of Swiss mountains, uh, you know, the Alps, castles, that type of stuff do really, really well in Germany. Whereas over here, and that includes Canada, illustrated artwork does much better. But we also have really well-selling photographed images in our U.S. range. So, you know, there's not a clear-cut, there's not a clear-cut thing or answer to that question. Are you seeing any need to come out with puzzles that appeal to millennials in ways that wasn't appropriate for prior generations? Oh, yeah, uh, absolutely. I mean, I'll give you one example uh, of something that, you know, we kind of almost stumbled upon uh, by happenstance. Uh, we're doing a series that we call Abandoned Places. Mm. So, you know, it was an idea that our product development team had when they 
Uh, I think it was a news article somewhere about malls that aren't frequented anymore and or that have been deserted. And so they decided to kind of come up with a series of puzzles based on abandoned places. You know, something that's like one 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 of those images right. actually is a deserted department store. It's all illustrated art. I don't think like a couple of years ago, we would have ventured into that space from an art perspective. It's hugely successful. Now, I can't tell you because we weren't in that space like a couple of years ago, whether that would have been successful a couple of years ago. I do think like there is a shift like in demographic. However, all of that said, a lot of things that make a good puzzle really haven't changed all that much. It's like, you know, back to like the original question that uh, both of you asked, what makes a good puzzle? I still highly doubt that puzzles are a generational thing. What we typically speaking see, it's more like based on how you like like to puzzle. Whether you're a millennial, a Gen Z, or whether you're a boomer or Gen Xer, there's people out there that just like to relax with the puzzle. I think it's more like based on your persona and, and how you kind of how you're puzzling, more so than kind of what age group you are. Thomas, a couple of years ago, Ravensburger introduced some puzzles. Uh, I believe there were animal images that had an AI component to them and that you used an app and that once you had completed the puzzle, you could hold the phone over the over the puzzle and you could see the puzzle come to life. You're not doing that anymore. What was the, what was the learning in that experience? We got into that uh, when augmented reality was the talk of the town, so to speak. We are trying as a puzzle company to incorporate trends you know when you're developing product to kind of whether you know you ultimately end up in the right spot for the consumer or not like you're trying to incorporate certain trends in your product development so that you remain relevant and you learn so with this one what we discovered was uh the puzzles themselves were really really good puzzles the real challenge that we had at least at the time and which ultimately made us abandon those puzzles was we at the time did not have a team in-house that was really good at developing augmented reality app. So what then happened, because like people bought this thinking like this is a really cool idea and like this app is going to work really well. We disappointed consumers with the concept itself and the experience that they had like after they put the puzzle together and they were trying to use the app. Those apps need to be updated all the time. The operating systems change all the time. You kind of become outdated so quickly, like you have to stay on your toes all the time. So there were lots of challenges that we learned a lot about, uh, but ultimately made us kind of remove the product from the market. We just didn't have the right product for the consumer. I love the fact that you were chasing a trend because that's what the toy industry does. We chase trends. I want to ask you about something you guys introduced about five years ago, which I have loved playing with. It's called Gravitrax. And yeah. it is a modular system where you build marble runs, basically. And this has really grown. It's really grown. Uh, talk a little bit about where it came from and where it is right now. Well, where it came from was an idea that our development team in Germany actually had. We cooperated quite a bit as this product idea evolved from a drawing to first mock-ups to us then thinking like this could be a, a kind of like a STEM toy, like, you know, as we kind of honed the idea and the process. This country over here is probably the leading country when you're talking STEM and how that's kind of being done on packaging and the whole background of and thought process that goes into a STEM toy. That kind of got us into it. It's been doing really, really well. We have a clear strategy of giving the consumer a couple different entry points. We started with sets that 
mostly built out flat that had that goal of like, you know, you keep that marble going as long as you can. Then we launched the pro line, which kind of builds in height, building in height. If you want to talk to them for a second, adds energy to the system. That's the physics, right? And if we had seen each other at Toy Fair, uh, I would have shown you something. I would have been able to show you something really cool. We are now getting into the coding aspect of things. So like we are, we are introducing electronics. Oh, wow. Uh, so that will be, that will be the full launch electronic sounds. That's a new launch. So like I'm giving away something here that you're going to see pretty soon. Uh, you know, we would have shown it at Toy Fair in, at Toy Fair in New York, but you know, unfortunately that's not happening. So. How much do you think of the current love of puzzling comes from the feeling of completion? that we're in a world where everything's at sixes and sevens. And here you can do a puzzle and you can complete it. And it's a satisfaction. It's a huge element in puzzling. This is kind of, this is, I think, where my puzzling brain kind of comes off the comes off the rails. I'm, I'm, I'm joking a little bit here, but that's the, the whole aspect of com- completion is something that doesn't make me the ideal puzzler or makes me anxious because I want to just get this puzzle done as quickly as I can. So like it's done, right? That's that's my attitude. Maybe it's a competitive spirit. I don't know what it is. I can just tell you like that's kind of what like looking at myself and then there's people and consumers out there that care a lot about completion too, but for them, it's the road that leads there. That's the interesting part. The worst experience you can ever have when you're putting a puzzle together, and that does not depend on your consumer persona as a missing piece. So <laughs> is your is your question like, you know, is your question going in the right direction? Absolutely. Like, you know, completion plays a huge role. But I think the road to getting there or the importance of the road to getting there is different for different personas of puzzlers. So, Thomas, this year in season four of the Playground podcast, we're asking everyone we talk to a different question than we've asked in the years past. And we want to know, what was your favorite play experience as a child? My favorite play experience as a child, it it actually was something that closely relates to, I would say, sports. I grew up during the times, now I'm dating myself, uh, when roller skates were really big mm-hmm. and in that period when skateboards kind of became the big thing with my group of friends back in Germany, then at the time, none of us had the money and our parents weren't willing to kind of spend that on skateboards. So like we built our own literally. So like we uh-huh. took a wooden board and we unscrewed the, the the rollers from our skate and we kind of screwed them on those wooden boards and kind of turned those into skateboards. I'm sometimes still surprised I'm alive today. Like given everything that we <laughs> Uh, that was clearly not safety tested. That was clearly <laughs> kind of just to a good degree open-ended play. It was one of the most fun parts of my life in the sense of like just being out there and kind of doing what we did. We were totally careless. And at the same time, it was like just a whole boatload of fun then at the time. Thomas Kepler, president of Ravensburger in North America. Thank you so much for uh, decoding some of the puzzle stuff with us. We certainly appreciate your time today. Thank you, Chris. Thank you, Richard. This is the Playground Podcast, and we'll be right back with the end cap. And now we come to the part of the show that we call the end cap, where Richard and I talk about issues that are affecting the toy industry. And we are recording this on February 23rd, just around noon and less than 24 hours ago. The Toy Association announced that they are moving Toy Fair, New York Toy Fair, to September. Now, 
to put that in some context historically, Toy Fair has always been a movable feast. It's been, but it's always pretty much been in the first or second quarter from February to, to April. One version was as late as May. We have never seen a New York Toy Fair in the third quarter. And Richard, my phone's been ringing. What are you thinking? Well, first of all, if the toy industry is stunned by this, I don't mean it's negatively stunned. I just mean that this is a major shift, paradigm shift in our calendar. Now, for most of the time, it's been in February. Since the 70s, at least, it's been in February. And it's a long time. And as I pointed out in an article I wrote, when the first toy fair took place in 1903, nobody could fly in because the plane hadn't been invented. (laughs) No one could take the subway because the subway didn't open until the next year. So this is a deeply ingrained part of our culture. By moving it into the fall, it's highly disruptive to to people's thinking in their internal biological clock, <laughs> which oriented to, you remember when you were a kid and you went to school and your year ran from like late August to early June. That was your year. Right. And uh, so this is kind of how our calendar works. So I think it's very disruptive. I think, Chris, that it will be a very different show. I talked to you the other day. You mentioned very rightly it will be a closed booth show. Absolutely. Nobody wants to disclose at that time of the year their new products because it's too much, it's too easy for somebody to, to knock them off in time for the selling season. Because it'll be a closed booth show, Chris, it's not going to be a strolling show. Smaller toy companies who kind of go fishing, you know, they they have an open booth and they wait for the buyers to walk by and have that wonderful serendipity moment. It's not going to happen. It's going to be an appointment show. And I also think that two things that have been really important about Toy Fair in New York, certainly in the February time period, has been talking to Wall Street and the investment community, where you can really summarize the year that's just closed. And then from the media standpoint, because I don't think media is going to want to be covering in September items that are coming out for Christmas a year hence. They are just ramping up to cover the toys that are coming out for this year. So I think from from a media perspective, it's going to, it's going to be a challenge. The other thing I think is going to be a challenge is that A lot of these companies have an established infrastructure for meeting with people in September in their offices, and Mattel has a huge showroom. Even companies like Far Out Toys that we've spoken to here has invested heavily in a showroom. So we have a whole, an industry, as you call us, nomadic, that's used to going to California and different places in September to get their first look at Q4 for the following year. So I'm just a little confused about what's going to be the value to a lot of these toy companies. Chris, uh, one intriguing thing that comes up is that October was first look. Right. And then we went to January in Hong Kong and sealed the deal. 
Hong Kong is kind of in question right now, and nothing's happening in early January. What does all this mean? I think it's a major rethinking of the global toy calendar because typically, back when I was in a toy company, October was called early presentation. So it was the first look at things. And then people have gone to Hong Kong to move it to the next step to, in October to get ready for January when you really have a product that's 80, 90% finished. And then, because a lot of change can happen in a product from September to the following April when when final orders are placed. So what's going to fill that space? And it's going to be really interesting because we don't know what the fate of Hong Kong is going to be. And, you know, Chris, to your point, when you look at a first look at product, many times you're seeing uh, two-dimensional images and you're seeing rough prototypes. And if you don't, if you buy against a prototype, you're taking on a lot of risk because, as we know, that final product may not function as the prototype did in terms of maybe they had to reduce some cost or maybe it's not the quality and maybe you wouldn't have bought the product. So January was very important in order to be able to see what finished goods were going to look like are pretty close to finished goods. Exactly. And Josh Lorzel, when he was on our panel with the Toy Association for Toy Fair, was commenting on how it's shortening the development cycle, that that in order to be ready for September, what they have to back up into for the following year. So the potential for the years to lap themselves right now is really high, and it adds a level of pressure to the toy companies. Another thing that will be a good spinoff from this, Chris Byrne, is we don't have to worry about snow. <laughs> well, that's and, true. The weather in September in New York is usually quite lovely. It's one of the loveliest months of the year. Yeah, snow really can screw up a toy fair. People can't get in. When they do get to the show, they're exhausted. Just I remember slipping and falling in the middle of like 34th Street, laying on my back in the snow and having to get up because <laughs> you couldn't take a bus or a right. cab or anything. You had to walk. Chris, I, I think you're making a very good point. In some of the conversations on the social networks, there's speculation it's going to be a bigger show. I don't think so. I think it's uh, is not going to be a show that smaller companies are going to particularly want to attend because they just don't have the client base to set appointments. They're too new. And then I think some of the bigger companies like a MGA or a Mattel or a Jax, if I'm already showing my offices in California in September or October, do I need to be in New York? So I'm not so sure the show will be bigger. And I think, it, Chris, it's going to make Astra, if Astra grabs a hold of this, it's going to make Astra a far more important show. And one of the other concerns for small companies, because in September, they are working their behinds off, trying yes. to get fourth quarter up, running, out the door, sold through. So are they really going to have the resources, both human resources and financial resources, to stop everything, essentially, and go to a trade show. That's going to be a challenge for some people. There were people who said to me that they couldn't come to New York Toy Fair this past February, the one that was canceled, 
because they didn't have enough employees to run the company in case somebody got sick with COVID and had to quarantine for two yeah. weeks. So it's going to be a major change. Now, the one thing about the toy industry is it's incredibly adaptive and it's always gone forward. So we're going to have to see how we adapt to this because it does fit in with what a lot of the major retailers are saying that they want an earlier look and make earlier commitments for the following year. We'll get used to it. <laughs> it's a new paradigm. But uh, this is going to have a domino effect on the industry because maybe what we're really dealing with is there no longer is one toy industry. There are at least two. And one is occupied by very large companies who dominate sales and have very large infrastructure and deep and broad relationships. And the Toy Association is having to struggle, I think, was how do I cater to this cohort and at the same time with the same show accommodate small companies who maybe do a million dollars a year and instead of a billion. So I think it's an impossible task. I think <laughs> the association is trying as hard as they can. But I do believe what you'll see is someone else is going to step in to accommodate these smaller players. And as we always say here on the Playground Podcast, we're going to have to wait and see. It is a big change. As I said at the beginning, my phone was ringing off the hook yesterday within minutes of the announcement. And it's probably going to keep ringing for a while, as I know yours will, and we'll just have to see. And we will. We will indeed. This is the Playground Podcast with me, Chris Byrne, my co-host and cohort, Richard Gottlieb. We are brought to you by Global Toy Experts, The Toy Guy, and marketing and media agency, Chizcom. If you like these episodes, we do hope you'll share them with your friends and colleagues, and we hope you'll tune in next time. <laughs>